0: What I want to do this morning is kind of starting off this series of uh, of kind of what are people passionate about. Um, and I find this kind of thing really difficult because I'm, I'm the kind of person where I'm not quite sure what I'm passionate about most of the time. Like, I don't know if, if maybe if someone asked you that question, like, hey, what are you really passionate about? Like, sometimes you feel strongly about something, but often it's like, I don't know, breakfast, you know, like, like... Like, it's hard to kind of come up with an answer to that question. Um, and I find this quite tricky, but as I was thinking about it, I was like, there is something that I'm actually quite excited about um, and that I'd like to share with you this morning. And basically, what I want to do over the next kind of half hour is try and convince you that it's okay to fall back in love with the Bible. Now, I, I, I kind of, this is where I'm now interested in your journeys and where I want you to, once again, I'm so sorry, speak to each other. Apologies. Um, but half apologies. And what I'd like you to do is just to say, to ask each other this question, or to ask yourself this question. How would you describe your relationship with the Bible? Now, you can take that however you mean it, but what I don't want anyone doing right now is thinking, crap, I haven't read the Bible since March, or since like last March, or since March 2015, and then feeling any kind of sense of embarrassment. There doesn't need to be any embarrassment, there doesn't need to be any shame, there's no expectations. I genuinely want to say you to kind of think a little bit about what's your, what, is, what, what comes to mind when you think of scripture? Is that a happy thing? Is it this kind of niggling thing? Is it an annoying thing? Is it a confusing thing? Is it a beautiful thing? What does it feel like? How would you describe your relationship with the Bible? Oh, again, you might be completely new to this faith. You might have just walked in here this morning and now I'm asking you a really intense question about like, I don't know, I don't know what, like, I don't know anything about the Bible. That's fine. That's fine to say that. Like, I've got no relationship with the Bible is a perfectly reasonable answer to this question. But I just kind of want to get us thinking for a few minutes. So I'm just going to give you three minutes, go in twos or threes or fours or sixes or however many you want, um, and just have a chat. What's your relationship with the Bible? Okay. I hope that was an interesting discussion. Um, And I hope it... Well, yeah, would anyone like to share? Like, how would you describe your relationship with the Bible? Can we have a few people feeding back if you feel confident to? But you don't have to. (laughs) Okay, my guess is that we've got a range of feelings in this room. Is that reflected in any of your groups? A bit of a range? Um, And my guess is that a lot of you, probably a lot of us are fairly new to the Bible, um, and a lot of us are fairly old to the Bible, if you know what I mean. Um, Let me share you a bit of my story, because I reached a particular point, I think maybe four or five years ago, um, where I was just... So bored of the Bible. Um, and I know it might sound like an odd word. Maybe this isn't your experience at all, but it was, it was mine. And um, the kind of context that I'd grown up in was I grew up in an evangelical church, which probably a lot of us have. Um, evangelical basically means you believe that the Bible is inspired by God and is the Word of God and is the ultimate matter in all things of faith and practice, or something like that. Um, you might not have used that phrase, but this kind of what, what you might call like a high view of the Bible. Like The Bible is more than just a set of writings. It's, it's in some way written... By God, and it's God's gift to you. Uh, but in my kind of context, that felt very much like the Bible is God's gift to me, and then to you as you, and then to you as you, and then to you as you. This is your Bible. And then what you need to do with it is build into your life a fairly dedicated practice of reading the Bible. So whether it's in the morning or the evening, there's this kind of expectation that at some point you make some time uh, to read the Bible and to put it into practice in your life and you work through it. Um, and then if your youth worker ever asks you, how's your Bible reading going, you you need to kind of pretend that you're on track, basically. So you need to kind of make out like, yes, I, I'm doing very well, you know, like whatever. Um, but But over time... My relationship with the Bible kind of got a bit more complicated. Probably for some of us, it's gotten a lot more complicated quite quickly. And this is, again, where I'm thinking there'll be a lot of difference, um, even in this room. Um, But I started to have some problems with the Bible. (laughs) Not a surprise for a lot of us. Um, Some of those were kind of these niggling difficulties about parts of the Bible that just seemed either really... Really difficult or or just outright wrong, like outright evil or like God seems to be con- condoning this behavior, but that 's clearly nonsense, and if that 's what God is like i don 't want anything to do with God like that kind of that kind of thing um, but also my kind of my kind of view of how the Bible holds together with itself started falling apart, like what do you do if, if all of this thing is kind of is god breathed um, then then it must be completely internally consistent, right? And, and so, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this a bit more in a moment. Um, but I started having a problem with the fact that the Bible didn't always seem to quite line up with the Bible like even to the point that you know in one in one gospel Jesus seems to be doing this on a Tuesday afternoon and in the other gospel Jesus seems to be doing this on a Tuesday afternoon and and you know then i'd raise those questions and everyone always had like an answer you know like oh it's there's a way of tying them all together but but everything was to try and kind of protect the bible does that make sense do you kind of you almost you you, you shouldn't poke it too hard or it might kind of fall apart underneath you or something like that um and so there was this kind of, there's some problems, and then so this kind of feeling. But I think overall, the most damaging thing was just this sense of boredom. Like I got to the stage, because I work for churches, um, I would go to these conferences, and then, you know when you go to a conference and there's the bookstall, and at some point you have to visit the bookstall, and there's kind of an expectation that you you'll look, look at the ones with the nice matted covers, and you'll buy, you know, at least a couple. Um, But I kind of got to the point where I knew, and I'm not saying this in like, uh, I'm not trying to big myself up or anything, because I don't mean it like this at all. But I knew that there would be nothing at all in that bookstool that I hadn't read already, that I hadn't already heard, that there was going to actually be anything new. It's like, I wanted theology to be this exciting journey of discovery but all we were managing to produce in these kind of conferences and in the ch- kind of churches that I was a part of just felt like the same stuff regurgitated over and over and over again. So here's how to grow your church. Here's how to evangelize your friends. Here's how to do better at living the Christian life. In your, do you know what I mean? There's kind of three categories of book. And, um, and so there was this kind of deep feeling of like, over time I just kind of felt like I lost interest, like I lost a kind of connection that I used to feel where reading the Bible or where studying theology was this really, really interesting and dynamic practice. And it just kind of became a bit nothingy. And what I want to do today is just really help you to have an excuse to believe that the Bible might be fun again. And I don't know if anyone used the word fun to describe your relationship with the Bible. <laughs> Did anyone use the word fun to describe their relationship with the Bible? Not yet. By the end of today, we're going we're to do the same discussion in the, in, in 20 minutes' time, um, and you will all be like, man, the Bible is so much fun again. I just Sam has just opened it up. No, I'm just, And I want to kind of make this case because I really think that actually what had happened is that I just hadn't been reading Scripture very well, that me as Me as an individual, but mainly me as a church, me as a culture, me as a, I'm not a culture, um, us as a culture. We just, we've kind of, I think we've lost contact a bit with how to read the Bible well, how to let it do its work in us well. Um, And so I want to kind of just explore that a little bit today. Now, it will be totally okay if you go away from this morning and you still don't like the Bible if you don't like the Bible, or you still don't read the Bible. That's okay. What I don't want is any Protestant guilt trips leaving the door um, this morning where you kind of feel like, okay, now Sam says I should go and read the Bible. That's not what I want to do at all. Uh, what I want to do is just to help us to explore a little bit that, that coming together around this text could be fun again um, and could be a really dynamic source of life, and I would say an encounter with God together again. Is that okay? You want me to get on with it now? Good. Um, great. The first thing that I would like to kind of chat about, really, is is kind of moving from a stagnant view of scripture to a bit of a moving view of scripture. And I, sorry, I'm going to use the word scripture and the word Bible interchangeably. Um, the Bible is obviously not one singular text. It's a collection of a number of different writings and stories that were put together over a long time through a lot of areas. I'm not going to give you a complete theology uh, of the Bible this morning, but I might just use those words interchangeably. So sorry about that. It's going to be very, very overarching general view. Now I'm showing you my armpit again. Sorry. I tend to flap. Now I'm aware that today I'm trying to flap like this so (laughs) so that I don't show you my armpits. Now you can't stop thinking about my armpits. (laughs) <laughs> um, but but basically uh, uh, the way that I grew up understanding theology is that good theology and particularly good biblical theology is about making the Bible completely internally consistent um, and that means that if the Bible is written by God which of course it is, then it must it say exactly the same thing in Genesis 1 than what it says all the way back right at the end. There can't be any change because surely there's no change in God. And if the whole thing is written by God, then the Bible must have a right answer on basically everything in life. So so if you look at the Bible, there must be one consistent right message on salvation and what salvation means, what what finding being saved means in your life. There must be one right answer on every issue of morality or every issue of ethics or uh, on what hell is and what heaven is or on justice and 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 so the work of the theologian is basically to read through the bible and whenever whenever anything seems to be out of line with with what you know to be the right answer about what salvation is or what morality is or what ethics is you kind of have to bend the bit of the bible that seems to be saying something else to actually be saying what you know it really means to be saying. Does that make sense? And so there's this kind of work where you're not, you, you kind of almost, a lot of the time it feels like you're working against these stories. There's no ability just to be like, well, that story is clearly horrible or is clearly wrong because I know it must be saying something that's clearly right. And so you have to kind of do all the work um, of, 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 of making it kind of seem consistent. Now, there's this really interesting thing that happened almost exactly 75 years ago, maybe just slightly over 75 years ago, where a shepherd, uh, a Bedouin shepherd boy, um, just near the Dead Sea, was, had lost a sheep. It's a very touching story. Um, and he went looking in a lot of these kind of naturally formed caves um, around, just around the Dead Sea and the cliffs around the Dead Sea for his lost sheep and eventually found it. When he hopped down into the cave where the sheep had fallen, it turned out there were a bunch of stone jars there. Um, and in those stone jars, it turned out were the most significant archaeological find when it comes to the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish Bible, so the, what we call the Old Testament, um, that had ever been found. What this kid found was a collection of like thousands and thousands of scrolls spread over a number of different caves, actually, that they found afterwards, that have come to be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Has anyone heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Good. You're very educated. Um, but also, it's fine if you haven't heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it's kind of a niche subject. And... Um, But the Dead Sea Scrolls, they they kind of did a couple of cool things. Firstly, and this is very, very simplistic, um, they show us a little bit about what ancient communities of Jewish kind of, (laughs) I was going to say fanaticism, but these these guys were a kind of sect of very ardent um, uh, Jewish believers. Anyway, that kind of shows us a bit of their lifestyle. That's one thing. Secondly, there were tons and tons of copies of the Old Testament scriptures. But here's the interesting thing, or one of the interesting, there are lots of interesting things about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's the interesting thing for our purposes today. Some of the copies of the texts that this very ardent community had of the Old Testament scriptures were different. Now, there was an enormous focus on copying things right, so the scribes would spend years or I don't know how long, but ages, handwriting out um, every text. They had to be incredibly careful and they would handwrite them out. Um, and there was an incredibly kind of high view on those texts when they were kept. So you kind of feel like, wouldn't a community have been like, well, this is the right one and this is the wrong one? But what they had that was, uh, the, uh, was these t- different versions of different scriptures, particularly like Jeremiah. Like some bits of the story are just told quite differently to make quite different points now here's why i think this is interesting um the bible doesn't seem to have a problem and ancient people who really valued the bible don't seem to have a problem with there being inconsistencies within the text it was like the community kept two versions of jeremiah kind of feeling like well this one will teach us something and this one will teach us something or like the fact that you open your Bibles and on page one, you've got a creation story. And on page two, you've got a completely different creation story. And they, you, scientifically, you cannot make those two match up. And the people that put Genesis together weren't idiots. They knew that, but they knew that this story teaches us something. And that this story teaches us something. Or like the fact that when we look at the story of Jesus, there's four different Gospels. And the people putting these stories into the Scriptures and saying, Oh yeah, this is, let's have these, and, and these are canonical. They weren't idiots. But it wasn't a problem to them that Matthew says a slightly different thing to Luke, which says a slightly different thing to Mark, which <laughs> and John just came from a different planet altogether. You know, like there, there didn't seem to be a problem. It's like having stories told in different ways brings something richer. It's like that it's okay that the Bible might do things a bit differently throughout itself. Does that make sense? But also, the Bible doesn't seem to have a problem. With having a change of thought over time, so like, like you know, I'm going to use very cliched examples, but like in the in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, I'm doing a lot of <laughs> a lot of this. Hide the pits. Um, stop talking about the pits. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's, there's this command where you know basically if you see someone breaking the Sabbath law including, and that means don't do any work on Saturday um, including picking up sticks to make a fire you take them out of the camp and stone them and then later on in the Bible like Jesus has this, well uh, uh, there were lots of things you get stoned for one of them was for adultery, Jesus is, has a woman who's brought to him who's been caught in the act of adultery figure like who (laughs) anyway um um and and they brought this woman to him to trap him because they were saying well the the law of moses says to stone her and jesus kind of you know he's he uses it as a teaching opportunity he's very clever but basically his answer was kind of like uh no no we're not going to do that like there's this jesus is okay with taking a part of the bible and saying but now, not, like in the Sermon on the mount, you 've heard it was said this, but I tell you this, like there's this trajectory of of change throughout the Bible that that the Bible likes. does that make sense that the Bible is okay with it doesn 't make it any less, it makes it more like like in the old testament this view that the 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 people of israel are god's chosen people and then but but everyone else is kind of out like everyone else is kind of out there but then paul gives his whole life to saying but no that's not right now or maybe it never was or maybe god has always been the god of the gentiles as well as the jews or maybe there's the new thing does that make sense And that, that starts to make the Bible a lot more fun because now we haven't got a static thing. We've got this flowing, moving, dynamic thing that's in conversation with itself where the people and the communities that are writing it are taking the stories and saying well what about this what happens if we pull this and push this is is that really who god is and 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 they they have the freedom to ask difficult questions of the of of the stories they've been handed down and even offer some different answers there's the feeling that that the whole text is going somewhere. Richard Raw uses a phrase that I really love about the about the Bible. He says the Bible is a text in travail, a text like that's in labor. It's kind of giving birth to, it's, something is being, is being made through this scripture. But it's not just a static object. It's in conversation with itself. And there's this self critique in the Bible that is just so, so healthy. But here's where that gets really, really fun, is that invites us in as well. Because now the text isn't just in conversation with itself, it's also inviting us to be in conversation with it too. like i used to kind of have this feeling when i read the bible that if you if you come across something that's really hard or really that seems really wrong like you know <laughs> someone gets caught picking up sticks on a sabbath day and then his family take him out of the camp and murder him okay so now what do i do with that and i kind of had two options before um one was just to say that, well, I'm clearly wrong, and I clearly don't have a high enough view of God or sin, so I just need to change my view, because actually, when you commit a sin against God, you're committing a sin against an infinite being, and a sin against an infinite being, therefore, is infinite, and so you're, you need to die. <laughs> like, you know, you're forced to kind of go through that kind of hoop to make the guy worthy of death on, because he picked up sticks on a Sabbath day. Or you just kind of, your other option is kind of ignore it, move on, and move to a nice bit. If the text wants to be in conversation with the text and the text wants to be in conversation with us, is this making? I can't work out if your confused faces mean that I'm making sense and so by making sense I'm confusing you or whether I'm just not making sense. But I'm going to try and resist the urge to ask you if this is making sense like I always do every time I speak. Am I making any sense? So I'm just going to trust that at some level this might make some sense. And if it doesn't, Write me an email um, <laughs> but there 's kind of two options I, either i 'm wrong and god 's right because it 's the Bible, or just ignore it and, and move on but 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 now i 've kind of one think, well, what if that 's not a problem? like what if that was supposed to be your response to reading the text? What if the way God wants us to read the Bible is to read a story of a guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath day and getting stoned by his family and to have the reaction, but surely not. What if that's the way the Spirit of God wants to move? through the scriptures? What if that's a part of the way that the scriptures um, come alive? There's this ancient, another ancient Jewish um, enormous text called the Talmud, which is basically like the Jewish law. So it was them kind of going through the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and kind of saying, but like, what happens if we push and pull um, these, these laws? What happens if we really think this stuff through together? And it ends up with quite a detailed set of kind of how this is how to live a good Jewish life. Um, one of them that I particularly love is, is this hypothetical challenge that one rabbi sets to another rabbi, where he says, imagine it's the Sabbath, so it's a nice Saturday afternoon, um, and you are, are not working, but you prepared a bowl of strawberries yesterday to eat during the Sabbath. What a nice Saturday afternoon thing to enjoy during the Sabbath. You look into the bowl, and you see that one of the strawberries is rotten. Does it break Sabbath to remove the rotten strawberry? Or is that okay? And then they go on for page after page after page. Like, it's really hilarious, but also kind of brilliant. Um, And they eventually decide that it's okay to notice the strawberry, but not okay to remove it. So I thought I'd just resolve that for you. But but here's here's the cool thing. One of the things they do in Talmud is they talk about all these big kind of problems, um, in the, the kind of big discussions of scripture. Like what does this mean? What does it mean to obey in this way? Um, and there's loads of kind of competing arguments. So the way it's kind of set up is this rabbi will say something, and then this rabbi will say something, and then this rabbi will say something, and then it kind of the conversation goes around and around and around for a bit. And there's something ludicrous, like 5,000 arguments. I'm not, I, I couldn't find the exact number, but you're going to have to trust that I've got it vaguely right. Let's say there are 5,000 different arguments that come up within, with these rabbis about theology. Um, I was listening to this guy talk about the Talmud a few years ago, and he said there's 5,000 5, arguments. Do you know how many that they actually resolve? And he kind of let his, let his little student organi- uh, population chew on this for a moment. And I think, again, I haven't confirmed this because I couldn't find the old podcast that I was listening to. But I think he said, of that 5,000, they resolve 15. Which leaves a lot of open conversations. Do you see what that invites us into? A way of engaging the text that doesn't mean we need to get to an answer. But the point isn't getting to an answer. The point is us Engaging with the text, having having that struggle with the text. Do you remember the the the? the, the <laughs> <clearly not>. um, <laughs> um, do you remember the patriarch Jacob? Um, right back in the kind of early chapters of Genesis, and he has that night where where an angel of God visits him. Jacob's in a bit of a mess, um, and he spends the whole night wrestling with the angel and then god changes his name the next day to israel which means the one who struggles with like the, to be the people of god isn't to just read and accept to be the people of god is to be the people who read the bible and have the guts to go wait that seems that seems great that seems brilliant that seems really really troubling and then to dare to enter into a proper conversation about it i'm not just saying i'm not just being a liberal wishy-washy you can just throw away all the bits that you don't like it's much more of a big challenge than that this is saying how do we kind of actually actually engage take the text pull it stretch it interrogate it Um, and we're not we have kind of learnt, i think in our context as western christians we've learned that that's not a good thing to do with the Bible, that that's a disrespectful thing to do with the Bible. Even to the point that I, I, at university, a bunch of people, uh, like a lot of scholars believe that Paul didn't write 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And for ages I just felt so uncomfortable with that knowledge because I didn't know what to do with it does that mean the Bible isn't in, isn't inspired does that mean God is wrong does that mean there's a whole problem I should throw the whole thing away what how do I ever tell my church that I'm think that Paul didn't write some of Paul's letters like that that's not going to go very well you know but because uh, I kind of felt like knowing that stuff kind of violates the scripture what if it doesn't what if saying hey we don't we don't always know where these texts come from, but but they do come. So how do we converse? How do you talk with them? How do you share with them? I'm reminded of that um, beautiful bit where um, uh, one of the scriptures says, "All scripture," which is kind of you know it's kind of talking about itself. Um, but all scripture is is living and active. It's living. It's a live thing, sharper than any two-edged sword. And you have to say "edged," not "edged." because, you know, it's old school. Um, Sharper than any two-edged sword. But I love that idea of the Scripture being alive. And I think for a lot of my story, Scripture was only alive in the sense that I had to just take it all on. It was only alive in the sense that God definitely did write it all. But now I think I'm moving to a point where the Scripture um, is alive in a whole different way. It's alive because it's in conversation with itself. It's alive because it's in conversation with, with, with us. But thirdly, and maybe... Um most significantly, I think, the scripture is in conversation with others, with the other. I wasn't quite sure how to word that, but I think this is the way I want to word it. And that is because a part of the reason, do you remember I was talking about my boredom with theology in general? Has anyone else ever felt bored by theology? Whoa. Good. Okay. No, no hands, but there were a lot of nods. That's good. Um, I think I realised a few years ago a part of the reason that I was so bored with theology is that all the books I was reading were by people who were, kind of culturally speaking, almost exactly like me. Like you go to these bookshops and or these bookstores and conferences, nearly all the books are written by cis, het, white, middle class. Western dudes. Is it any wonder I wasn't reading anything particularly interesting? (laughs) Like, if you ask, if you only ever ask one group of people to do theology. It's never going to be, we're never going to get a good picture of God. Funnily enough, God starts, after a couple of hundred years of all the theology being done by cis, het, white, straight, um, uh, white, straight, western guys, God starts to look awfully like a cis, white, heterosexual, white dude, doesn't he? Like, do you know what I mean? And we kind of wonder what went wrong. Um, but the, the way that we read and that we engage with people who aren't like us around Scripture is where I think the whole conversation really, really, really gets to come um, alive. Because, yeah. Basically, if I only read the Bible from my perspective, I'll read it through the lens of my own cultural expectations, the lens of my own prejudices, the the lens of my own assumptions and my own political stance. And then, sure enough, God agrees with me a lot of the time. Who'd have thought? Um, but but when I give the text to someone else, to a different group of people, and there are just so many groups of people that the church hasn't been listening to, but actually have been doing theology, funnily enough. And uh, I've kind of talked about this a number of times recently, but there's been a number of groups that that I've started reading the theology of. And definitely from the point of view, I'm, like, I'm not an expert. I've just kind of been dipping my toe and just seeing that there's an ocean here. Um, but like there was this movement of what was called liberation theologies over the last 50 years, which was basically this. What happens if you just give the poor, say, and I'm doing that in inverted commas because the poor can mean a lot of different things in a lot of contexts. But it started really in Latin, Latin America um, with, with literally the poor who were oppressed by their governments. What happens if you give them the scriptures and they open them in small groups and they start to push and pull the scriptures together? What you get is this understanding that the gospel is about justice. Oh my goodness! And that genuinely—the shocking thing about this is that that genuinely came as a shock to a lot of the church. To the point that, like, the, the the hierarchies of the Catholic Church were like, we need to put a stop to this. We need to put bishops in to kind of control what the people are thinking because they're going a bit communist and saying that God cares about justice and that the gospel is about justice. It turns out, if you're if you're poor and you read the scripture and Jesus keeps talking about the poor, you read it in a slightly different way. You don't just need to internalize it and say, well, you know, all of us are sp- uh, spiritually poor, kind of like I just did, actually. But it actually, it's about liberation. It's about justice. Or, or there's been so many other movements, like the feminist theological movement. All of a sudden, well, that, that opened a lot of eyes. Like, what happens when you let women read the Bible and then write about it? Turns out there 's a lot of challenge there's a lot of pushback because the Bible seems to confirm a lot of patriarchal assumptions particularly when it's only read by guys but also just not noticed when it's only read by guys because we kind of that 's the water we just swim in and so we needed women <laughs> it shouldn't again this shouldn't be amazing should it but but it kind of it was and and um has been the movement of Black liberation theology. What happens when you read the Bible in segregated South um, um, Southern states of America? All of a sudden, it raises different questions. It raises different conversations. Um, or like the uh, the womanist movement that I've talked about um, a number of times here, where it's like uh, Black women in the states doing theology, um, and so kind of who are facing like this kind of dual oppression of both being black and having all the assumptions and negative um, kind of impact that that has on your life in the States, in that context, but also of being women. So even when they go to church, that's dominated by blokes and they've still got no voice and they've still you know got these gender roles that they're expect to, expected to participate in and stuff like that. And one of the cool things is it just brings out different things in the discussion. Like in womanist theology, there's this constant coming back to the story of Hagar now this is kind of a, a massive one for me because I don't know how many of you know the story, but there's this story in the uh, right again right back in Genesis where Abraham the great father of our faith and his wife Sarah are, t- are trying to have a baby and they've been trying for years and in fact they're not even trying anymore because they're both way past it um and God promises that they'll have a baby. And then there's this story where Sarah says, oh, you take my slave woman and have a, sto- have a baby with her. And so Abraham says, I can't see a problem with that idea. And so he does. Um, nowhere does anyone ask Hagar whether she's okay with this. And I never noticed that fact. Until uh, I read a book by a womanist scholar who said, if you you don't realize that the story is about Hagar, if you don't realize that this is a story about the oppression of slave people, of people who are downtrodden, then you are not reading this text. I'd never given Hagar a second thought. Isn't that nuts? I mean, that just drives home the depth of this problem is the bible isn't just meant to be in conversation with us where i read the bible on my own and then i get the answers out and i push back against the bits that i don't like the Bible is meant to be read in conversation with a whole range of people. Like there was uh, another recent movement uh, of like queer theology. It's just incredibly beautiful. Like what happens if you get LGBTQ plus people to do theology, which funn- funnily enough they are doing. Um, and, and, and it raises all these beautiful things. Like guess who the first convert is in Acts who's, who's like not a Jew. It's an Ethiopian eunuch. In other words, it's someone who doesn't conform to the gender binary of their day. Someone who doesn't conform to the expectations of what a man is, what a woman is. But this person, God sends Philip to the chariot of to say, come and have a new life. It's the first convert. And it's taken the LGBTQ community to really highlight that to the rest of us. We need to be reading this text with other people. And that is then good for all of us. It's not just good for the people that are excluded. It's not just good for the people that we think the Bible isn't about. It's good for all of us when we do that. Um, now, I appreciate that's not an easy thing for just like, oh, go home and read the Bible with a bunch of different scholars. Like, where do you find all this stuff? And we can kind of do that over time. But I think a part of the lesson there is we, you need to be challenging the people who give talks here <laughs> to on how we do this kind of stuff, I think. I, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do, we, how do we do that? How do you guys as individuals go home and, and read a bunch of... Am I making any sense? I did just ask you if I was making any sense. <laughs> um, but one of the things we, I think we do do quite well together as a church is to discuss when we're learning together. So, so it's like, how do we make sure that voices are being heard in our journey groups when we're talking about something? How do we, or even acknowledge, maybe it's this, even acknowledge when there are voices that aren't being heard and just wonder. I wonder what that would bring. I wonder what those people would have to say um, about this. Um, yeah. I think just just finally, I want to uh, uh, nearly finish. I want to nearly finish. There you go. That's a promise, isn't it? Um, is the Bible fun yet? Probably not. <laughs> um, Melissa gave me a little devotional book or oh, it's a fairly large devotional book actually, but it's like little in terms of each day, it's just a very short um, page worth. Um, but Richard Rohr gets in twice in this talk. This is a a kind of series of reflections by Richard Rohr. And I just really like it because I can read it for a couple of minutes um, and then just kind of lie and think about it. Um, but he kind of opens this book by talking a little bit about our relationship with the Bible. Um, and basically says, here's, Here's the point, and I guess this is kind of what I'm trying to get at with, the, with that last thing, is often we come to the Bible and we just, we just want it for answers, or we just want it for information, or we just want it to prove ourselves right, or to prove someone else wrong, or the Bible becomes about arguments that you win and you lose, or it becomes just about static, boring information. And he says, "How do we? How do we have a bit of a different view um, of scripture?" Um, let me just read, read this to you, um, and then, and then I think we'll take communion together, which I had forgotten until I saw people getting it ready <laughs> before the service. But actually, this is such feels like such a good place to land, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. Um, so I'm just going to read from this at a bit of length, but this is this is Richard Raw. The sacred texts of the Bible are filled with absolute breakthroughs, epiphanies, and manifestations of the highest level of encounter, conversion, transformation, and spirit. The Bible also contains texts that are punitive, petty, tribal, and idiotic. And Now, for a lot of us, that will feel uncomfortable in itself, but just hang, hang with it. A person can prove anything he or she wants from a single line of the Bible. To tell you the truth, the Bible says just about everything we might want to hear somewhere. This is a sad and humiliating recognition, but we can relearn our way of reading Scripture in a prayerful, calm, skillful, and mature way. Then we can hear with head, heart, and spirit working as one, and not just engage in a quick search. And search for quick answers. I would like to say that the goal in general is to be serious about the scriptures. We've often substituted being literal with being serious, and they are not the same. And then he puts in brackets, read that a second time, please. I don't think he's talking to me, but uh, I will anyway. We have often substituted being literal <laughs> with being serious, and they are not the same. The point I would like to make is that literalism does not take the text seriously at all. Pure literalism, in fact, avoids the real impact, the real message. Literalism is the lowest and least level of meaning in a spiritual text. Willful people use scripture literally when it serves their purposes, and they use it figuratively when it gets in the way of their cultural biases. Has anyone ever noticed that happening? This bit's literal. No, that bit's not literal. because That doesn't work for me. But he says, willing people, and he kind of draws a distinction between willful people and willing people, which you don't need to worry about. But the point is, this is the good one. Willing people, let the scriptures change them instead of using them to change others. And I think I just, I like that. Not that you just then take everything that's in the Bible without asking questions, because that's obviously not, not what we're going for. But rather, this whole process is about saying, what does this ancient conversation between God and humanity? What's it forming in us now? What does it bring up in us now? What is it changing in us now? What is it pushing in us now? What is it reforming in me, in us? Both as we do this work together, as we do it individually, um, and as we do it with a wider group of people. And that's why um, I think that actually landing on communion feels really, really good. Because what communion is, is it's this picture of, of taking on something and it forming us and um, communion it's impossible to own communion it's impossible to dominate communion it's impossible to kind of keep anyone out <laughs> of communion this is this ultimate thing where it's for us all and it's shaping us all and it's all of us saying i need i need this i'm hungry and i want more